Welcome to Southern Discomfort. This is one of the most unique podcasts on the internet. Southern tales of the weird, wild, mysterious, unusual, voodoo, voodoo. cryptids, hauntings. Are you intrigued yet? This is Southern Discomfort. Southern Discomfort. And now, your hosts, April and Christine. Hey everybody, welcome back. In case you're just tuning in, then welcome. We have another story for you tonight. We do. Hey everybody, it's Christine. Um, before we get started though, I just want to remind everybody um, to follow us on our socials. Um, on Twitter, we're so disco PC. Instagram, Southern Discomfort PC. And Facebook, Southern Discomfort Podcast. Um, you can email us at Southern Discomfort Podcast at gmail.com and find our podcast on Podbean, Southern Discomfort, um, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And um, we're glad you're here and we've got a good one for you. Uh, what's our, um, what's on tap for our drink du jour? We have Snowball Juice, which is an IPA by Urban South. Places where you brew beer. I'm very highly educated. I know words. I have the best words. And it's so that was it's the cause. avoidance right. of saying yes. Brewery. I, there you go. Thank you. It's a um, hazy, juicy IPA, smooth drinking, hopped up IPA with nearly five pounds per barrel of Idaho Seven, Vic Secret, El Dorado, and Citra. If you know what that means, how is it? It's not bad. It's um, on a scale of one to ten, with me not being an IPA connoisseur, I would give it a five. Okay. Well, that's fair. Um, and, you know, for our listeners, or, or, or uh, repeat listeners, um, they know that you do tend to try IPAs typically and know that I'm not a fan of them. So... I actually have an ale, Urban South Ale. It's part of their pop collection, Tangerine Sour. Um, It's a sour wheat ale aged on loads of tangerine puree, reminiscent of a fresh mimosa. Um, It brings a refreshing sour ale um, with loads of sweet tangerine, soft acidity, and a pop of effervescence at the end. Grab a porch and grab a pop. Oh, I like that. That's I love Urban South. Their market, their yeah. uh, branding is just really cool. Um, yeah, so they're out of New Orleans. So if that gives you a hint, we're going to get right into it. Hint, but, hint. Yeah. So <laughs> back in Louisiana again. So everybody, um, grab your drink and let's get uncomfortable. Let's do it. So tonight we're talking about Carville. This was the only leper colony in the U.S. Maybe. Well, I believe Massachusetts and actually Hawaii. Um, right. However, I think uh, Hawaii was first, then came uh, the Massachusetts and uh, Louisiana um, colony. Uh, but Louisiana definitely is the most notable, I yeah. believe. I mean, um, for reasons we'll get into. Yeah. So leprosy is a biblical disease. I mean, it's a tale as old as time. Ten commandments. Yes. The plague. Um, it, yes. They are over 30 
um, passages or, or references to leprosy itself in the Bible. Um, I checked, so just kidding. No, I don't know. There, well, that's what I right, and it's what it's let the the effects or symptoms um, of leprosy are what I think of when I think about the plague. Right. Um, I don't know if that's you know the same thing that others think about, but that's just for me. Right, and then growing up, um, our mother uh, grew up in Baton Rouge, and so she would tell us, I just remember her telling us, I don't know what you remember, but stories about the leper colony in uh, Louisiana and just being terrified as a Mm -hmm. young kid, you know. Well, so she used to, okay, so Nana would take her on trips uh, up and down the um, river to these antique yeah. shops and that you'd have to go through uh, Carville to get to the antique shop. So mom said that as a small kid, you know, she would be in the car and just hold her breath when they <laughs> drove by, just terrified uh, just of what she had heard about the patients or residents yeah. um, of Carville. So as a result of that, when I was a kid, we were kids, and she yeah. would tell stories about when she was a kid, I naturally was afraid, too, so didn't want to go anywhere near um, the... <laughs> anywhere near Carville. Right. 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 Just, I just won't even go. Like, we'll stay away from there. Some things make sense now. Which but. is, you know, you're, you know, you'll see as we, as we go through that, uh, it's this stigma that really perpetuated this colony and this, uh, lifelong isolation. Absolutely. So there were increased cases of leprosy in New Orleans. Um, and in 1894, five men and two women arrived by mule cart at a New Orleans wharf, um, who had leprosy. Um, they put them in pest houses or La Terre Lepro, Leper's Land. That's what they called them. These were leper homes. Um, and then, so this was beginning to come a problem in Cosmo, New Orleans at the time. Uh, the Daily Picayune published an article. This was uh, alerted the public to at least 25 known lepers just loose on the streets in New Orleans. And these pitiful conditions um, known as these pest houses on Hagen Avenue. And so in by 1883, Louisiana uh, passed the Act 85. This was a legislature that appointed Hagen Avenue, uh, the pest house, which was a previously a smallpox hospital, as the site of containment for those diagnosed with leprosy in New Orleans. Um, this, as you can imagine, caused public outcry. And everybody was just like, we in New Orleans was, you know, not, not in my backyard. Right. Nimbyism for sure. So they like clean up the pest houses and the streets. Um, this also corresponds with Storyville and, you know, you Throw can go back to yep, our original episode. Can um, kind of go back and reference that one too, how things were in certain areas of New Orleans at that time anyway. So all this pressure from the reporters at the time. They this um, this caused them to f- to find a new home for the lepers that were just walking the streets. As it sound, make it sound like zombies, like move them out of sight <laughs> right, so they're yeah. out of mind. 
right? <laughs> and at this time, they didn't know anything about it. There was no treatment, so they they just thought that it was highly contagious. Nobody knew what to do with them. So when the New Orleans City Council just did little to act on this, there was a, a dermatologist from Tulane, Dr. Isidore Dyer, and he they took it upon themselves to provide suitable medical care for these um, these people suffering from leprosy. Um, they did attempt to find another location. So it's like, not in New Orleans, but they didn't want to put it somewhere that was close enough for these doctors to like come and go, basically. So in the twilight of November 1894, seven residents of the Hagen Avenue Pest House, they stepped off of a coal barge. And so, but on the way up the river, they went up the Mississippi River on this coal barge. They were um, instructed to, I guess, the boatman to let out all the rope between mm-hmm. the boat and the barge because they thought, you know, that everybody was afraid of this. Right. And um, so, and just to walk it back just a bit. Okay. So we touched on... Um, the the quote I'm saying this in air quotes plague so and and you mentioned you know not not a lot of is known about the disease itself at this time it was actually 1873 when I'm not even gonna let's see Gerard Hansen Gerard Hansen a Norwegian uh, physician first discovers the bacteria. Um, that causes this disease that uh, the symptoms are painful deformity, damage to nerves, which results in susceptibility to injuries. They oftentimes would amputate, um, you know, arms, legs when necessary to remove the severely damaged parts of the body. Um, But this is why, okay, so because of the pain, the deformity that it caused and the images that that conjures, uh, people were outcast and discriminated against. And like you're saying, people don't even want to get like within arm's reach of you. Right. Because the lore around it too is that these, not only is there amputation, but um, lore is that they'll just, the parts of the body that are so severely damaged just fall off. So you think, oh, God, you know, I'm going to... But in actuality, they don't fall off. They're reabsorbed back into the body, which is actually pretty amazing. Um, So just wanted to say that because I didn't mention it earlier. So sorry. Carry on. Oh, yeah. Um, No, that's fine. So So when they stepped off the barge, they were 60 miles up the Mississippi River to an abandoned home of a sugarcane plantation that was called Indian Camp, and this was named for General Camp, who was um, a veteran of the War of 1812. He first owned this land. So, And the centerpiece of this plantation was the main house built in the 1850s. Um, this is the same architect who built the historical Nottoway Plantation in White Castle, Henry Howard. Um, and the mansion on the property was called Woodlawn. So they lived in so so they so what they do is they send them up river because they don't know what to do with them don't know how to treat them um, they're like we want them not too far away so the doctors can visit you know they're certainly not gonna they did have one doctor that stayed there on the property um, who was that was the resident physician Doctor Wales but um, 
it's just they just sort of like get them out of here let's just find somewhere here's an abandoned plantation with a home let's put them there so they put them there and it was in deplorable dilapidated conditions um in slave cabins with snakes and vermin um and they basically just left their life and their families and they were just on they were on their own dropped off and yeah just, just like left to their own devices yeah basically like just get out of New Orleans so um nurses didn't want to work with them um because people were scared and they scared they were going to get this disease um that they didn't know anything about and they certainly didn't want to um have a disfiguring uh disease the nurses didn't want to work there but they so they requested the help from the Daughters of Charity. These were nuns that were already in New Orleans. Um, and the sisters, they agreed to, to come down. And, and it wasn't, um, they weren't scared. They just went. And even one of the newspapers, the bishop said that they were just doing their job because everybody else was like, oh, they're so brave going yeah. down there. Um, it was heroic. Right. But they were, they just did it. Like, they're just like, you know, this is what, somebody needs to take care of them. And we're going to do this. Um, so leprosy was starting to become a problem in other states as well. And people just started bringing their patients from these other states to this home. Because they, they found out that they, that, okay, well, Louisiana has put them somewhere. So, well, we want we don't want them here. So we're going to you know, bring them there. Let's take them to their place. Right. Which is, I, I know, we have the 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 benefit of hindsight it's a dumping ground right but that's exactly what it was um then there was a increasing public outcry for the government to do something and in 1914 a spanish-american war veteran named john early he goes to washington dc for a press conference and announced to everyone i have leprosy mm-hmm and I'm sure everybody was taken aback and they were shocked, but that made it all the real. And he pushed Congress to to establish a place and to um, set up um, funding for the government to actually like handle this um, public health crisis is really what it was. So, um, Congress in 1894, they purchased the the home in Louisiana, which they were calling it a leper home. They purchased it from the state, and then the federal government um, they took it over in 1921. And then the, all the medical staff, the doctors, the daughters of charity, they um, become federal employees at that point. And then the um, leper home became the Marine Hospital Number 66 in Carville. Yeah. And this was even before it was um, named Carville, because it was just, like we said, it was called Indian Camp. The plantation itself was called Woodlawn. And then it just had this um, leper home name. But um, they also, in this area, it was called Island. So this area was, it was called Island, but there were a lot of places in Louisiana called Island at the time. Avery Island, Pecan Island, Sicily Island. So the mail kept getting mixed up, and the Postal Service in Washington called it, uh, called the post office Carville because the postmaster at the time, his last name was Carville, and then 
the town became known as Carville, and then James Carville, the p- political strategist, is from the Carville family, same name. So every patient in the country diagnosed with leprosy was sent to Carville. And they left their homes, they left their families, they left everything. And some of them were even brought in by chains. Yeah. Like, just they were just forcing them to come to this place. Um, New Orleans was already and still is very religious and very heavily Catholic. And um, they already had the nuns in the city. And with leprosy being a biblical disease, like you said earlier, it was very much um, stigmatized. So to be called a leper was a derogatory term, just negative. And with leprosy, your hands and your face, um, this is something you mentioned earlier, become disfigured. But this is what you use to communicate. You know, people, you, you speak with your mouth and you, you make eye contact. You use your hands as illustrators. None of the staff at Carville ever caught leprosy. That's important to know. 95% of the population is resistant to it. You don't catch it. Um, the stigma far exceeds the risk of uh, the danger of ever even getting it. Yeah. So. You know, and what's so tragic about the whole thing is that at the time it was not known um, that most people had this natural immunity and would never even like contract the disease and if they did it could be easily cured with antibiotics but the tr- the real tragedy i think is that these you know they they're referred to as patients a lot in the um literature that i researched but they they're truly residents however they lived this life in isolation where they had no rights they couldn't vote they had no interaction with well they were not supposed to have interaction with the outside world they couldn't leave it was basically like they were imprisoned and and they lived their entire existence cut off from their family um their loved ones and like you were saying the conditions in the really early years were to, to say that they were substanders is an over overstatement. They were they were worse than that, deplorable. And um, you know where this facility is located? It's in this swamp, mosquito infested, um, you know, place where they're subjected to, uh, or they have a uh, susceptibility to other diseases. You know that just compound um, this terrible existence um they even had a jail there was a jail and oftentimes patients were um forced into changing their names to protect their families that lived on the outside so that there wasn't this like discrimination um so you know just wanted to to mention that 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 this was that's the real tragedy i think um especially in the early years yeah, so you mentioned they didn't have a jail um, because, and then people who lived nearby, they would threaten to shoot them if they escaped. So they were treated more like inmates or prisoners yeah. than as a patient. Um, so, and the early doctors and chief researchers and pharmacists were actually the nuns, the daughters of charity. Um, they were the ones with the courage to care for them. They're extremely smart. Um, but let's, uh, but going back to, or, bringing up doctors, and you had mentioned uh, Gerhard Hansen. 
He's the one who actually coined the name Hansen's disease because um, leprosy had such a negative connotation. Um, and the, he identified it. It is a uh, caused by the Macrobacillus leprae, which is a rod-shaped bacteria. Um, it was the first bacterial human disease identified. Like I said, was it? I did not realize that. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. So, um, but the nuns, though, they were um, they were super compassionate and they treated everyone with love. You know, here are these these people that came to this community who were, who were um, isolated and ostracized. But they had these nuns who were described to as these angels that took care of them. Um, And they were children on the property, too, because a lot of them were diagnosed with leprosy as children. And they tried to make their life as um, normal as possible. They would have, like, birthday parties and music festivals. They would teach them piano lessons. Um, They they just, um, they tried to make it fun. They had Mardi Gras balls. Um, They even had a... A publication called The Star. Yeah. So Stanley Stein, he was um, blind and disabled, mm-hmm. but he was um, an editor. And he started The Star for a dollar a year publication. Um, he just wanted to educate the public about leprosy. Um, he was he was actually responsible for reforming the practices at Carville. And this was to lessen the stigma and to retract reform, which it did. Um, he even arranged for celebrities to come and visit Carville, and um, that actually was very effective and and, work, and worked um, well. And that, that also played into um, having helped these, these people of this community of Carville live as much of a normal life as they possibly could, so. Yeah, and um, so he he wrote stories about uh, how residents even built their well. So as the years progressed, and 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 more knowledge and um, you know scientific advancements in the identification, treatment, et cetera, around the disease, uh, it got to a point where when people could actually leave if they wanted to I'm jumping ahead a little they would they would choose to stay because what happened is you know as a result of all of those things you were talking about you know building as normal of a life as possible you know people that were once sick afraid isolated and lonely forged family and friendships and community despite being treated like lepers some of them even built houses and he would uh, stein would write about uh them gardening and making and selling crafts and at these uh festivals and they would even um Received donation donated costumes from Mardi Gras crews from New Orleans and Baton Rouge, and they would have their own floats uh, modified to fit down the small streets of Carville. So that is really, you know, I guess the beauty in the tragedy. Yeah, make the best of what's around. So um, you had mentioned that they've they've given up all rights and they basically live like inmates and prisoners um even in spite of all this um and at time there was a time when they couldn't vote um the men couldn't even visit in the, the ladies in their rooms right they were talking about a, a, adults here and um they didn't have a phone all the mail was sterilized 
they had they put it in basically this autoclave. They burned it essentially. Um, so they were treated as though at that time those like they committed a crime, but they there wasn't any cr- a crime that they committed. They just contracted this. Their crime was disease. Being sick. Right. Um, they didn't want the couples to marry. Although they did, because if they did have kids, they um, they couldn't stay there. They had to, they would send them to St. Elizabeth's Orphanage. Okay, I'm glad that you brought that up because when I was reading through this, you know, it, it what I saw just said they were not allowed to have children, and if it, it did happen, that the children were taken away. But I never could find to where where. Yeah. Okay, so what does that mean? What what happened? So yeah. is that an orphanage that cared for? Children of lepers only? Oh, that I don't know. Um, that's St. Because you're introducing this communicable disease. I just, it didn't really make sense to me why you would take them away. Right. Well, they didn't, they just didn't want anybody to ha- get it, you know, yeah. contract it. And they thought, oh, well, the last thing we want to do is propagate this disease well, throughout society. Sense. But, um, the, but you know conditions did get better as we'll go through there was even there was a family at least probably more than one but one that I did see that um, they had two kids they had a son and a daughter and they were um, they were adopted out to or fostered out to a local family who were already had like seven kids themselves and so they would bring the kids to the property. And it was sad because they would come up to the fence. Oh. But but this family made all, like, took all, just everything they could do was to let these kids know these are your parents. Because it was the mom and dad that lived there. And so, yeah, because they met there and then had the kids there. Um, but, oh, my heart. Yeah, but it turned out good. Um, they, they were able to have a, a normal life because... Um, there was a a hole in the fence, and so um, it was actually an area. There was a chain link fence, and it kind of went down over a culvert, but it just didn't. It's the way the ground kind of opened up for it, and um, there was a director there that knew about the hole in the fence. And that was sometimes when they escaped, they would go to this jail, like we talked about. They would send them to jail, but. At this point, the director actually enlarged the the hole. He kind of looked the other way because he let them come and go. These are adults, you know. They would so they um they said they would escape through the hole and they would go to LSU football games. What? That yeah, that's that was the highlight um of their day. They would get, someone would walk a mile to the local Red Rooster, Red Rooster <laughs> and have some drinks. Um, they would fish on the lake. There was a Aww. lake there. Yeah. So um. But then eventually they were able to get a pass, and but they weren't allowed to use public transportation. They had to fumigate their clothes. And here's the thought. This was pretty interesting. When they did go to another state to travel, they had to actually get permission from each state that they had to travel through. Well, that sounds like you're on probation or parole. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and they were... You know, at least early on, treated like institutional patients. They were experimented on. Yep. There was a hot box treat. Um, this was described as like an iron lung. But the thought behind this was that the bacterium multiplies in the cooler parts of your body. So there was some science behind it, I guess. Um, they described it as the fever machine. They would get in naked and just like their whole body would be heated up. I hope they didn't do that in the heat of summer. They probably did. 
They probably did it all the time. But at this point, they were like, I, you got to try. Let's throw everything at it, you know. Let's just try to um, try to do this. So there was a major horn buckle. And he, um, he, so he was fine, but his wife contracted leprosy. So she was sent to Carville. Ugh. And they told her when she arrived, they're like, you'll never see your husband again. And she said she just laughed because they're like, they don't know my husband. He moved there. Oh, wow. He left his life and he moved there and lived with her. Never contracted leprosy. FYI. So, um, so they, like, there were medical advancements to stop leprosy because that's where, um, the attention was and the focus. Um, Dr. Faget in the 1940s, he was the medical officer in charge. Um, they were using promine to treat tuberculosis, which is a very similar bacillus. This was used in rat leprosy, very similar to human leprosy, not the same, but very similar. Um, they used this intravenously on a group of patients. It actually, actually reversed the effects. The deformities that yeah. they had in their face. It was amazing. Like, this was called the miracle at Carville. Is that the sulfur? What'd you call it? It's prom- promine. Is that the sulfon, whatever? They sulfone. they use that too. Okay. And then before that, I didn't mention, but I guess we could, the car, they, car, they used the carmugula oil. Oh. And that was um, injected, and it was also, I think, orally, but it was very painful and... Um, and not very effective, but it was interesting because they were just so desperate to try anything that they would do this. But these shots, um, they would take them every day. Ooh. And they were extremely discomforting and just very painful. But um, then they started testing them every month, and they started testing negative. And then once some a patient tested negative for 12 months, they could leave. Yeah. They could absolutely leave, and then I was so... They just had to take their documentation with them, didn't they, that, that they were cleared for 12 months? I didn't see that, but I'm, I mean, that would make sense. Um, but they were told that if they ever wanted to come back later on in life, that they absolutely could, you know. And then some left, but then some stayed. I mean, that says something that, you know, there was a level of comfort. Right. And familiarity. So some of them actually felt that the government owed it to them to take care of them, too. So that was the other thing. Well. You know, it's like you took us away from our life. and I mean, or they were left there. But either way, they were like, you know. I can kind of see that. Yeah, point. for sure. Sure. All the, there are people from all over. the um, All the states. All um, other countries. Or brought their patients to live and be treated at Carville. It was a very diverse community um, from every walk of life. It was like a mini UN. And so they had their own power plant, their own carpentry shop, shop, bakery, water treatment plant, mason, dairy, paint shop, accredited schools, the best teachers. They had more in their community than they had in the surrounding communities. But that's probably because no one wanted to come into their community. Right. So they had to be a self-sustaining community. And they were. And even in the 50s, it looked like a planned community, very progressive. Um, It was an integrated community in the segregated South. And it was actually 
not at all what people thought it was. Absolutely. They were making strides like faster yeah. and better than anybody it, on the outside. Innovation and for sure. Wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah, happening in little old Carville, right. Louisiana. So um eventually oh okay, well I'll tell this first though. Um they I thought this was cute though. There's a story about they played softball games and it was a big deal. Like they would sell peanuts and just like, you know, all the concessions that you would a regular softball game, but they only had home games because they couldn't <laughs> leave. <laughs> but it was a big deal. Like the Aww. nuns would be sitting in the stands and everybody would it. come out for it. Yeah. So America's pastime. You know? So there you go. But um Eventually, the labs moved to Baton Rouge. Um, they still continue to find a vaccine to this day. Um, they need to find a resistant host, um, something resistant in other animals. Um, and armadillos, they they are a natural host for the disease. Um, and Louisiana probably has hundreds of thousands of armadillos and then probably the hundreds <laughs> right, of these actually harbor the disease and they don't know how they transmit it to man. They believe that they do, but they just don't know how. Oh, because I read that man transmitted it to armadillo. Right. Well, it could. It's probably a back and forth. Okay. You Pass know. it between <laughs> species. I mean, they've looked at insects, um, and it is as vectors. Like, what's actually going on here? You know, how is it? Yeah. Be? And it is interesting that um, it is and did kind of develop out of didn't kind of, but developed out of this um, community in Carville, de- developed out of New Orleans that's so close to Tulane, who is has an excellent program for um, the tropical diseases. Like virology? Well, that too, but they, they're they highly specialized in, oh, I'm not a scientist. But, yeah, I'm not, but they, I'm, if you're not, I'm definitely <laughs> not. So. With the tropical diseases um, bacterial area. So, um, so today it's treated with a cocktail of drugs, um, dapazome, rifampin, and clofazamine. I'm pretty sure I said those right. <laughs> I'm kidding. I probably didn't. So this actually kills the leprosy bacillus, but some pa- patients get allergic to the dead bacteria that's yeah. left in their body. So they use thalidomide. Okay. Which. Interesting. We remember from the don't remember but if we can research and look back in the 50s this was um thousands of massive birth defects and but they use it today in very controlled treatment and they're very successful with it so this is actually what kills the well help well alleviates the allergy to the dead bacteria in the body um also interesting is that the treatment is like di is like diabetes or diabetics. Um, they've made breakthroughs in this uh, through leprosy, because with Han- or Hansen's disease, they can actually save the limbs because they will treat it like um, leprosy. The Carville facility not only studied leprosy but also the deformities and how to treat and re- rehabilitate. Yeah. So they've been able to save diabetics patients' legs, limbs because they of borrowed the- from the research that was done in carville yeah you know that's huge yeah you know what you're welcome right you're welcome a a nice thank you to louisiana that would be nice but anyway carville definitely has its place in history from experiments and education and advancements um and just not giving up 
um it's a special place the nuns even said it's a holy place like it's just like none other and i'm probably gonna get emotional here but yeah it's it, it does make you feel for sure they say that they hear singing of, of um it sounds like a choir of angels just singing when no one's around and um they they liken that to or they attribute that to the struggles that and the um strides that they have made through this place um yeah so in 1999 the u.s public health service transferred carville back to louisiana um, because, you know, they had made all these advancements and right. they and just, they, it ran its course. There is, uh, or at least there was still one daughter of, um, charity still there. And so, and, a, and a handful, and I think maybe even like two or three, um, patients still living there. I'm not sure if that is to this very date as a recording, but 500,000 patients passed through. Um, this area. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. So today, the Louisiana National Guard oversees the Gillis W. Long Center and the Louisiana National Guard Corps, and they operate the Louisiana Youth Challenge Program where they reclaim at risk youth, which I think is absolutely Which is wonderful. another um, just amazing effort to, to support and help people that are in just need of that. Um, and then there's also the National Hansen's Disease Museum that's open to the public. I don't know if it is during COVID, but we'll have to go check it out. Yeah, I would like to. I, I, I think going, I think being so terrified of this place as a child and now knowing what I know, I think it would be really incredible to go and just see it or what's left. Yeah, because it's right here. It's, it is in our backyard. Really. And we're going to take mother with us. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. So thanks for listening. Um, I'm glad we could end this one on a high note. Absolutely. And remember to keep one eye open because you never know what you might see. So if we're doing, if you're doing socials, then I'll just do drink du jour and then yours and then mine. Yeah. Why are we recording? Oh, because it was funnier when before I hit record. <laughs> Don't say that. You set people up for failure. Yeah. You're a terrible <laughs> teacher. You're a terrible teacher. A director, come on now. You're our director. The political strategist. Strategist. The political strategist. Strategery. <laughs> Words. Strategists. Yes. James Carville. Oh, I didn't even mean to mess that up. So the political strategist. I know words. I have the best words. Shit. Strategist. The political strategist, James Carville, is, um, um, so with your, the disease is, um. (laughs) Oh, my God. Corona. Oh, yeah, we're just spray sprayer down. It's okay if she sneezes. I mean, spray me. So when your hands and your face. (laughs) I didn't even catch that. What did you say? Oh. Where do I start now?
I would start with... Uh, you use your hands and your face? This is what you use to communicate. <laughs> I think it's more you want to say your face is important to express how you're feeling. You know, your... Uh, uh, right, right. It's not so Facial much expression. speaking with your mouth. That's true. Your hands communicate. Would you stop with all that uh, being right shit? Okay, you know what? I'm not even going to... We're not going there. You've been listening to Southern Discomfort with April and Christine. As you can tell, this is one of the most unique podcasts on the internet. So we want you to be able to reach out to us. Send emails to Southern Discomfort Podcast at gmail.com. On Facebook, it's Southern Discomfort Podcast. And on Instagram, it's Southern Discomfort PC. And for shows, visit southerndiscomfort.podbean.com. And this podcast can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. Till next time, keep one eye open because you never know what you might see. This is Southern Discomfort. Signing off.